We can uh, dismiss our kids. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Weston, one of the pastors here at Covenant Church. Uh, do me a favor, give it up for Kaylee real quick, uh, who just read uh, this, this awesome verse that included the words emasculation, circumcision, and lump. <laughs> All in one verse, and did it with such gravitas, too, I might add. It was beautiful. Uh, welcome to Covenant Church this morning. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to that uh, chapter in Galatians, Galatians 5. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 7, which is where we left off last week. But before we get into today's text, I, I do want to go back to the beginning of this chapter. Um, and I want to repeat the way that the Apostle Paul begins this chapter of Galatians. Because the, the, they are some of his more famous words. And they ultimately encapsulate uh, much of what we're going to be looking at today. And in many ways, the entire book of Galatians uh, and, and just Paul's view of the gospel and, and, and theology in general. So uh, let's go back to verse 1 of Galatians 5 to start with today. And here's what he says. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So let me repeat that. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray real quick to get started. Father, uh, God, we pray today that as we encounter the truth of your word, that through your spirit you would speak to our hearts, God, that you would interpret your word in our minds, in our hearts, Father, that we would leave um, not only having understood what you have to say to us, Father, but that we would leave uh, empowered and inspired to actually do what you've called us to. Father, to actually put into action the things that we have learned through your word. God, give us courage and boldness to do that. Give us hearts, Father, that are humble and willing, that are willing to submit to you in all things, God. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the truth of your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's begin by outlining uh, that verse that we just read. Uh, first, Paul says that Jesus' purpose in performing his saving work on the cross is our freedom. Jesus' purpose is our freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. When we are walking in freedom, Jesus' purpose is fulfilled in us. And to the contrary, when slavery, his purpose is not fulfilled in us. His desire is freedom. What Paul's saying to the Galatians and what I believe he's saying to many of us today, myself included, is that you can claim Christ all you want. But if you are still a slave to something other than Jesus, then the purpose for which Jesus came and died and rose is perhaps not fully realized in you yet. We can claim Jesus all we want. 
But if we are not walking in freedom, if we are walking in slavery to something other than Jesus, then the purpose for which he came is perhaps not yet fully realized in you. So Paul gives this counsel to the Galatians. If you have heard and received and placed your faith in the freedom that Jesus offers, then you have a new task ahead of you. And it's the task of standing firm and not submitting again to the yoke of slavery. And he says this because he fully recognizes that this is our nature. Like this is the battle that we face daily, hourly, minute by minute. That battle of standing firm in the finished, complete work of Jesus. And not submitting to the yoke of sin. And not submitting to the yoke of slavery. And our sin nature is to fully give ourselves over to things that are not Jesus. Our sin nature is to be controlled by things that are not Jesus. And the deception of the enemy is such that often these are slaveries that trick us. Because on the surface, they don't seem physically oppressive. So chances are, this is just my guess, but chances are, when some of us think about uh, slavery and people being enslaved to things and controlled by things, uh, I think probably if, we, if we're thinking in a modern sense, most of us are probably not thinking about actual human slavery. More than likely, we're thinking about things like addiction, right? When we think about people being controlled by something, that we're thinking about somebody who has a meth addiction, somebody who's addicted to alcohol, somebody who's addicted to gambling. I, I work down at the hub, and, and we have this lady uh, who's a part of our ministry who's been uh, kind of uh, coming to the hub for years and she has this horrible gambling addiction and so any money she makes if, if, if it's left in her hands if she's on her own she's going to take that money and go to the casino and she is going to lose every penny like that and, and, and she's done that over and over and over and over again she should know better but yet for some reason it controls her. She thinks, I'm gonna, this, this is the time. This is it. I'm, it. More than likely we think about addiction as one of those enslaving or controlling forces. But oftentimes the enemy works in such a way that slaveries fool us into thinking that they are actually forms of freedom. And yet, if we could zoom out, we could see how submitting ourselves to something other than Jesus, even while claiming Jesus, can actually merge us onto a path that slowly but steadily veers us away from the gospel. As we've talked about in previous weeks for the Galatians, this was a slavery to uh, the Mosaic law or at least some facets of the law, the law of God, the law that God had literally handed down to their ancestors. And this enslavement was enticing to them because it seemed so right, right? This is God's law. Why would we not follow the law that God handed down to Moses, when that's what we've been doing our whole life, if you're telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, then why wouldn't Jesus be all about this? 
The problem was, though, they claimed Christ, but at the same time, they actually believed that it was the law along with Jesus that would set them free. They believed that if they were going to be justified or made right before God, then they had to be circumcised. And, and so it was this, this idea that Jesus alone wasn't quite enough. It wasn't unimportant, but it wasn't quite enough. It had to be Jesus plus something else. And for Paul, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. It's not Jesus and you doing something if we're going to be made right before God. Paul says it is Jesus alone. There is nothing else. He is everything. He has completed this work on the cross that gives us access to God and makes us right before God and gives us hope and gives us joy. And so hopefully you can understand Paul's tone in verse 12 when he said, I I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And what he's saying there, and he's trying to be provocative and a little bit sarcastic, what he's saying there is this, look, if you think that's so important, if you think that cutting away of circumcision is so important, then why stop with just a little bit? Why don't you just keep cutting? There's a translation that says, I wish you would go the whole way. And so he's being hyperbolic, but, he, but he's trying to make this point. Like, you're just, you're just cherry-picking certain things. And yet we do the same thing. We do the same thing in the church today. Maybe not in quite that extreme of a way, thankfully. But we do the same thing. We cherry-pick the things that we want to be important, and we place them alongside the gospel or on the same level with the gospel But here's Paul's perspective, and it's critical to our understanding of the truth of what Jesus has done. It is Christ alone. It is Christ alone. It is Christ alone. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can add to what Jesus has done that will somehow make you more righteous or more acceptable or more worthy of God's justification. There is nothing that you can add to Jesus' work. And a deception of the enemy and enslavement of the enemy is a lie that says, oh, but there is. Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about this this same concept, this same theme in a number of places, not only in Galatians. And he dives deeper into this idea in Romans 8, starting in verse 1. He says this. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now stop right there for a moment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice that that is a complete thought in and of itself. Not Jesus plus something, not Jesus and some action on your part. No, there is no condemnation based on one criteria alone. If you are in Christ, period. And this is also a conclusion to several chapters of Paul expounding on this new life in Christ apart from the law 
And so let's read on verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in Christ, we are free from having to worry about condemnation. We are free in Christ from being ruled by sin We are free in Christ from the penalty of death. Amen? But this is because God has done this through His Son, Jesus. He has done through Christ what we could not do on our own under the law. He has done through Christ what we could never do just by trying to follow the law. We could not on our own fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. All we could do is stand condemned by the law. Paul says a chapter before in Romans 7, listen, the law is good because the law taught me what it means to covet. But yet at the same time, the law is my death because at the same time that it's teaching me what it means to covet, It's convicting me of the fact that I am horribly covetous. So the law cannot save. It can only convict. But now through Christ, the righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled in us. In us, he says, because the spirit of life, the spirit of Christ has come to dwell within us. And so the question is not, are you circumcised? That doesn't have anything to do with it. The question is not, have you followed the law? The question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because it is in Christ that we find true freedom. But here's a challenge for us, I think. We're, most of us, I assume, Americans. And we have a complicated history with this word freedom. I mean, it's a core feature of what makes America, America, right? This idea of freedom and liberty. But the problem is that the freedom that Christ brings us is not this American libertarian notion of freedom. Freedom in Christ actually has nothing to do with you being unencumbered to do whatever you want. Which is the American libertarian concept of freedom. Right? Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom like this that that I can make decisions to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. That's that's the basic concept that most of us have grown up with when we think about freedom. But Paul actually says that that that's the opposite of freedom in Christ. He calls it the flesh. That idea that we would be free to do what we think is best, to do what we want. 
He paints this picture that we can either walk in the spirit, resting in the finished work of Jesus, or we can walk in the flesh, which is all about doing what we want and basing our hope of salvation on our works or our righteousness or our goodness or our morality. But that freedom is actually slavery. What we often talk about as freedom, the Bible says, is the pursuit of slavery. Because it's the pursuit of what we want and what we think is best over the pursuit of what God wants and what God thinks is best. And so it's confusing to me when we combine God and America. Because oftentimes those two things do not fit together. In America, we value this notion of self-reliance. That we can trust in ourselves, that we can take care of ourselves. But God says, the gospel says, no, don't rely on yourself, rely on me. Don't be you, be me. So there's a conflict here. Let's continue in Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To pursue what you want, to pursue what you think is best, instead of what God wants, is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in, in you. Notice that's, the, that's kind of the membership card for this. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This is an exclusive thing, isn't it? It's an exclusive thing. No matter how inclusive we may try to make what Jesus has done, this is a very exclusive thing. You can't kind of have the Spirit. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if the freedom that I'm seeking after is a freedom that is based on doing what I want, or it's a freedom that's based on my effort or value or goodness, Paul says that it is a freedom that will only lead to death. So it never was really freedom to begin with. It's the illusion of freedom. But if your freedom is not based on you, but on Christ, then there are two key things that will happen. First, if your freedom is based on Christ's finished work, then you will set your mind on the Spirit, which will free you from enslavement to sin. doesn't mean you will never sin again. It just means you won't be ruled 
by sin. Sin doesn't have to be your only choice anymore. It will free you from sin being your master. And second, it will free you from death. Because it is only through Christ that God's wrath towards sin is satisfied. It is only through Christ in you, dwelling in you, that God can look at you and feel that you are somehow worthy of being adopted into his family. That God can look at you and call you a co-heir with Christ. That God can look at you and call you a son or daughter. It's the spirit of life in you, dwelling within you. And so this is central to Paul's understanding of the gospel and it explains his dismay with the Galatians who are trying to rely on their ability to follow the law, to save them, to justify them. So let's look again at Galatians 5 beginning in verse 7. He says, you were running when I left you. Things were, seemed to be going okay. What, who or what hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning... Who, who, who came in like a wolf and like started spreading this notion that you also had to do this? It's, it's obviously infected everything. If you've ever made bread before, it doesn't take much, much yeast to make a big lump of dough rise. And so somebody has infiltrated the church in Galatia and spread this idea. Paul says, I don't know who did this, but they will bear the penalty. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Meaning, if we think that something we do is going to save us, then we're missing part of the point of the cross. Which is that Jesus has taken on the penalty that we were all due so that we don't have to. And that should be an offensive thing to us on some level, Right? It is offensive to many people, this idea that Jesus has done it, and so we don't have to. And so here's what I have to say about this section. Uh, Verse 10, Paul seems very concerned that there's someone who's coming in and leading them in another direction. But he's most concerned that they're remaining enslaved to the flesh. And Paul's saying, don't you realize that it's for freedom? That you've been set free? And by the way, this wasn't just Paul's perspective. John 8, this was Jesus' perspective as well. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Meaning, if you obey me, then you are my disciples. And you will know the truth. The truth of what I've come to do. The truth of what I'm all about. And the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son or the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ, comes to dwell in you, the Son stays in the house forever. And you will be free indeed. So hopefully we get this simple truth that it is for freedom, our freedom, that Christ has set us free. If we are in Christ then we are free from this law of sin and death. 
But we still face significant daily temptation to submit again to the yoke of slavery. To give ourselves over to things that are not Jesus. And so how do we, as Paul said, stand firm? I want to just highlight two things as we wrap up. First of all, Paul says that we have to pursue mental transformation. Look again at Romans 8. Notice what he says beginning in verse 5. He said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Oftentimes, uh, we talk a lot about the heart when we talk about it's setting our heart on the things of God. But Paul, and, and honestly throughout Scripture, there's a ton of language about how we are to intentionally set our minds on the things of God. Uh, if we call ourselves believers, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then Paul's clear we're never going to be successful at that if we don't intentionally and strategically set our minds on the things of him. And so he speaks a ton about what we could call mental transformation. And it's clear that he believes that our actions, what we do, are totally based on where and what we are focused on, what we are focused on mentally, where our heads are at. And the chances are, for most of us here, if we're being real, the mind is the darkest part of our lives. The mind is the place where we entertain all kinds of notions that have nothing to do with the gospel, that have nothing to do with Jesus. The mind is the place where there is a constant battle going on. And for most of us, we have not intentionally or strategically tried to set our minds regularly on the things of God. Instead, rather, we fed this battle that's raging. But if what we do as followers of Jesus is based on where our heads are at, then we have to intentionally pursue mental transformation. It is a primary key to a successful life in Christ. Um, And Paul also believes that uh, a lack of mental transformation is one of the primary reasons why non-believers don't understand anything to do with the things of God or don't understand the things that Jesus has done. In 1 Corinthians, he says something to the effect of, for people whose minds have not been renewed, it is folly to them, the things of God. It's silliness. So how do we pursue mental transformation? Well, first, we have to realize that at its core, this is a supernatural thing that God is seeking to do in us. If his spirit dwells in us, it is his spirit that is seeking to renew our minds, our hearts, our lives. If you don't have the spirit of life living within you, mental transformation will be impossible. 
you do turning your thought life over to the things of the Spirit and as, as old school, churchy as it may sound, centering yourself on the Scriptures are certainly a step in the right direction. Intentionally turning your thought life over to God and reading and studying Scripture for the purpose of centering your mind on Him. As cheesy as it may sound to some of you, this idea of having a daily quiet time, it may not be a thing in your life, but hopefully you see the intention there. It's not just that we would read the Bible in some kind of legalistic way. Hopefully you see that the intention of something like that is that we would have an intentional time where we center our minds and our hearts on the things of God. And as many of you may know, you've had seasons in your life where you've done something like that and it's been good for you and then you get away from it and you think, oh, I should really get back. Like you notice a difference, don't you? It's key. And <laughs> you begin to see how the enemy has designed our world to distract us from doing that, right? When everything in our world is pulling our attention away from the things of God and, and is actually pulling our attention to ourselves. Here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to think about. Here's what I'm going to pursue. Here's what's going to comfort me. Here's what's going to bring me peace. Like that, That's our world. If you've ever been on a diet, you start to notice that around 5 p.m., all the commercials are about food. Have you ever noticed that? Like as you get home from work, when you're like, I'm trying to eat healthy, all the commercials are like for pizza and KFC. It's the same thing in our world, guys. Like, the enemy is constantly trying to divert our focus. So devoting ourselves to an intentional time, not in a legalistic way, but in an intentional way. And let me stress that the intention has to be renewing our minds, not just studying the Bible for the sake of studying the Bible, because here's the deal. You can read the Bible all you want and, and, and have absolutely no mental transformation or change if the intention is not embracing the spirit of life, God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus and following him. Just reading the Bible will not somehow miraculously do that in and of itself. So I know people who go to BSF like it's their job, and yet it's clear there's no mental transformation in their life. You have to read the Bible. Listen, you have to read the Bible with the intention that you will actually put into practice the things that you have learned. And if there is no intention of that, then why read the Bible? Secondly, First, renewing our minds. Secondly, we have to practice love. We have to practice love in the way of Jesus. If what we do, our actions, if that's based on our mental state, then the mind that is being renewed should be producing a life that is focused on love. And I don't mean in a romantic sense. I mean a life that is focused on love in the sense of specifically love of neighbor. Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Here's what's amazing about this. On one hand, Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, just trying to follow the law on your own cannot save you. But if the spirit of life has come to dwell within you, if you have been transformed by the finished work of Jesus, what that should naturally produce in your life is this thing that is ultimately the summation and fulfillment of the law, which is that you would love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Which Jesus embodied perfectly. Jesus is the embodiment of pouring ourselves out for others. That's why he is our example to follow. Isn't that amazing? Once we are in Christ, the thing that God desires for us is that the action of our lives would be a fulfillment of the intention of the law. But just following the law by itself can do nothing for you. Uh, Our community group is going through a book uh, by Tim Keller called Center Church. And um, there's this great quote that Tim Keller pulls out from an author named David Foster Wallace. Some of you guys may be familiar with him. He was super popular in the mid-90s. He wrote this book called Infinite Jest, uh, which is like a thousand pages long. So if anybody here has read it, it's it's huge. Um, Not a believer at all. Um, But he shares this... uh, this thought uh, in a commencement address that he was giving years ago. And here's what this author said to students. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. David Foster Wallace, even though he doesn't know it, was channeling Paul (laughs) in recognizing that we are all slaves to something. And yes, they are our default settings. They are the settings of our sin nature. And he was also right that we have a choice to continue to pursue the flesh, somehow thinking it will please God, or we can choose life in the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, walking in love in the way of Jesus. And it is only in Him and through Him that we find true freedom and the peace 
and the joy and the hope that only true freedom can bring. And so this morning as we enter into a time of communion, I hope you notice something and realize something about communion. This is is not just a ritual. This isn't just something that we do for the sake of doing it. This is something that Jesus has intentionally given to us, the church, as yet another way, another form of centering ourselves in his completed work. Because in the elements, in the bread, in the wine, we remember and recognize that Jesus has done it. It's not my body. It's not my blood that we're remembering. It's not yours, but it should be. Because we all owe God this penalty. But Jesus has done it. Amen? Jesus has done it. And so as we come to the table this morning, let us come intentionally seeking to renew our minds and to set our lives, our hearts, our focus on his completed work. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak to us, how you teach us, how you direct us. God, I pray this morning that um, that we would leave here and, and, and not be unchanged. God, that we would leave here with, with a heart to be intentional in pursuing you over what we want. God, that you wouldn't be an afterthought to us. God, that you wouldn't be a place we attend or a thing we participate in, but Father, that you would truly be at the center of who we are. God, give us clarity. Give us passion. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer to us, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, as you come this morning, um, I, I would encourage you just to, to take a few minutes to, um, to pray, uh, to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, as you come, this is open to anybody who is here who is a believer. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, just take a little piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. Um, and my prayer for you is that this would be something that is not insignificant. Even though we do it often, that it would always be impactful and memorable and something that for you, that you, you're not a casual participant, but that you're intentionally taking part so that we remember and so that we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So I hope you'll come this morning as you feel that.